0: Welcome to The Truth Perspective. It is Saturday, May 19th, mm-hmm. and we are back for a somewhat new format uh, for the radio show. So today, I know in the past couple of years I've had a lot of fun um, making fun of SJWs, and I know a lot of us have, and that's because of a thing called identity politics, and that's what we're going to be discussing today. Because In today's climate, at least in the Western world, um, identity politics is, you know, makes up a a huge aspect of just the entire Western worldview. And we can see that in the emphasis in the media and on college campuses and all over the place on things like racism and sexism, um, you know, with a foundation in the feminist movement, um, primarily for a lot of these issues. But we've been talking recently and we have... Come to the conclusion that there's an odd, an odd, an odd man out in the identity politics game, and so we're going to be talking about that today. With me today, my co-hosts are Ilan Martin,
1: Hi, everyone,
0: and Corey Shink. Hello, nice to be back. And so let's get into that third man, uh, Zionism. The reason I call it the odd man out is that if you look at a uh, Well, if you could make kind of a tally of what seem to be the left and right issues in just the political discourse of the day, you find that on the right there is a very uh, very effective, well, I I don't know if I'd call it effective, but a very strong criticism of the kind of foundations of identity politics. And so that's where you see most of the criticism coming from is slightly, well – Slightly right of center, can we even say that? Maybe not, actually, because the um, I think maybe I just fell into the trap of the radical leftists to mm-hmm. think that everyone that disagrees with them is, you know, uh, somewhere on the right to far right, when actually pretty much everyone is to the right of um, the far left, even if you're a centrist or even just a, a liberal liberal. Mm-hmm. So, um, but even then, the odd man out is Zionism. Um, and what I'd call kind of Jewish identity politics, because that's the one issue. Like if you look at uh, if you look at all these all the left issues, um, feminism, um, you know, anti-racism, um, anti um, anti-Zionism, mm-hmm. they are they're all grouped together. And then on the right, you've got kind of um, a very pro-Israel attitude, as well as a pro um, well not necessarily pro just an anti anti identity politics in every other area. So it seems like um, it seems like on the left that a lot of the negative aspects of identity politics that you see in all of its iterations are um, are identified correctly when it comes to Zionism. And then when you but then they don't see how they are actually exemplifying those like nasty bits of identity politics in their own feminist feminism and you know focus on white supremacy and racism that doesn't actually exist to the extent that they say it exists mm-hmm. and then on the right you have this this like vehement criticism of of identity politics mm-hmm. but then a total kind of acceptance and it's like it's like the blinders go in front of the eyes when it comes to zionism or israel so it's exceptional yeah mm-hmm. it's it's the exceptional one so well so for today's show, um, I think what we're going to do is to get into identity politics um, in general, and then in its specifics. So, so, so how the, how its main features kind of um, manifest in different movements, and so we'll be using. Hopefully, we'll be getting examples to to show how they're all kind of similar, and then it'll just make the make that middleman um, Zionism just seem all the more strange. How it kind of straddles. How it, it's in the left when maybe it should be on the right, mm-hmm. but uh, uh, I don't know. We'll get into it.
2: So, yeah, it's its own it's its own beast. But identity politics in general is really a, a different a different breed. That when you you look at it, you kind of got to poke at it for a while and see what all the similarities are between these different groups and where they differ. Uh, and in terms of the left uh, of the spectrum and the right. Whether you're talking about you know Islamists or um, or the Zionists or feminists, uh, what you end up seeing when you listen to their rhetoric and you read all of their different uh, you know, reports and publications is that there is at deep down there's a grievance. There's a fundamental grievance against um, an oppressor, or against uh, society at large that is usually boiled down to discrimination. They're a claim to being discriminated against for women. Or for feminists, it's basically that being a woman sucks because men are the oppressor and you have to stay at home and, you know, you want to go out and work and you want to do all the things that men do, but you have to take care of the kids. And so basically you're, you know, discriminated against by men and biology and by nature. And for um, uh, other groups, there's, you know, like for the Zionists, obviously there's a very legitimate grievance in terms of the Holocaust, you know, anti-Semitism was rampant, uh, especially in Eastern Europe and in the, the Russia of the Tsars. And, you know, Jews suffered horrendously throughout, um, throughout a, lo- a large part of history. And for Zionists, they were able to capture this, um, this suffering and this claim to discrimination and use it uh, basically in order to uh, claim a level of victimhood. That you know, you know, feminists and Zionists and Islamists and all of these different identity politics ideologues, basically, they'll take this claim, this grievance, discrimination, whether it's legitimate or you know, in some cases just outright, you know, nuts, and they will then turn uh, use it to convince society that they are the victims, um, no matter what they do. They have a, a victimhood that transcends blame and reproach so that no matter what the the group does uh you you can't you can't criticize them because then you're just further victimizing them it's your criticism is just more evidence that you are uh discriminating against them and that you are the oppressor
1: yes it's uh it's the hystericization of uh of victimhood of um trying to protect your tribe, your group. Um, Unfortunately, the the commonality between all of these groups is that uh, more and more what they do is see life out of the prism or the lens of their own victimhood. Uh, So everything is against them and what they identify as um, who they are. And uh, it's a very dangerous phenomena. Um, What it what it does is it puts everyone, it knocks everyone back on their heels. Mm -hmm. Uh, it puts everyone on the defensive, uh, when it, it isn't necessary to do so. Uh, and so if you, if you don't agree with it, uh, you have become by default, the enemy of this tribe or group that, Mm -hmm. uh, that is, um, ascribing to this identity politics, whatever the, you know, whatever group they identify with.
0: Well, if we look at, let's take some examples from um, like, well, let's start out with feminism. So well, feminism and, yeah, no, let's do feminism and gender politics and sex politics. So if a, if a person is critical of um, feminist policies, for instance, or like the new sex politics, as Stephen Baskerville called it, um, like the Title IX, um, is that what the, the campus like um, rape tribunals are called? I think that's Title IX. Um, any criticism of those policies as a set or individually will automatically lead to a labeling. So, And you see this from guys like Antifa, where the second you criticize anything that they do, you are a fascist, you're a white supremacist, you're a misogynist, and um, or, or, or did I say rape apologist?
2: Oh, no. uh,
0: rape apologist. <laughs> <You> so, <can. laughs> so anyone uh, and, and you'll see this at, at protests and in articles and blogs and, uh, you know, just random YouTube videos where anyone that disagrees with them to this to the slightest extent has this label attached to them. Uh, well, you don't agree with, um, you know, um, anonymous, um, unaccountable. Um, juries, you know, non-judicial juries that determine mm-hmm. the guilt of, let's say, like a you know, a university student, a college mm-hmm. student, um, from a from a, an, an anonymous accusation against them. Well, you don't agree with that. Well, you're a rape apologist. Well, you know that's not how justice works. Um, you, you know, like Jordan Peterson says, we tried this in the 21st century; it didn't work. We shouldn't try it again. Like mm-hmm. you, you can't just accuse someone of something and then and then have a trial with no. With no evidence brought in, no, no ability to see the evidence brought against you, no, no ability to counter that evidence to give your side of the story. It's just guilt is assumed, uh, it's presumed, and then, and that's it. And th- this is what we've seen in, in the Me Too movement, where guilt is presumed. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not to say that, well, y- you can have a lot of criticism of the Me Too movement, and there have and there has been, but to criticize just taking allegations at face value and presuming the guilt of the accused mm-hmm. is not to, to excuse like rape or, or actual like sexual harassment or anything like that. That's, like, that's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. It would be like saying because we put murderers on trial that we're murder apologists. It's like, no, you, they actually deserve a fair trial. That's why we like developed a justice system, mm-hmm. because people can be falsely accused and people are falsely accused. And that's the simple point. Like you'd think it's a simple point.
2: Well, that's I think that comes back into that whole blameless victim is that you know the whole the idea of victimhood has become sacralized or has become sacred um, to the left and to you know just to identity politics in general. So that if you are a victim, if you even claim victimhood, that means that the person who victimized you is guilty. No, it doesn't matter if they, yeah, (laughs) if they actually, you know, who needs an investigation at that point? Right, and. The
0: reason I brought that up is because the obvious parallel is anti-Semitism. Like mm-hmm. the second you criticize an Israeli policy, or any 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 action of the Israeli government or the IDF, then you're called, uh, you know,
1: an anti-Semite,
0: anti-Semite mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Even if you're even if you're a Jew, and there are a lot of there are a lot of Jews that don't that speak out against Israeli policies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of Jews that don't move to Israel because they don't you know they don't have that. Um, that nationalistic fervor to to go and you know be a part of the Jewish state, mm-hmm. um, and that's you know for those that do go fine, for those that don't fine. But there is this this boundary, right? And every group has a boundary. Every group has borders to some extent. But there and but when you get to identity politics, it's like those boundaries actually, um, even though identity politics is largely a product of the left, and yeah, and leftists like to open boundaries, right? There is. Um, an unstated but very present boundary within that identity politics group, mm-hmm. and and you see this like with with the far left with Antifa, it's like the second you like if you're on their side to some degree, the second you step out of line, it's like you are the enemy. Mm-hmm. Yes, and it's the same thing, you know, with uh, Israeli policy. Or and, and well, maybe you can speak to this, Ilan.
1: Well, uh, I think you know, growing up um, Zionist or or at least pro-Israel. Uh, th- this is a, um, a program that's pretty insidious in the sense that, um, on the one hand, you know, like we were saying earlier, uh, the events of, uh, of World War II, of the Holocaust, of, of documented anti-Semitism in Europe and in Russia, uh, it, 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 there is all this objective history uh, behind what is a very real phenomena. Um, and the... The kind of um, twist to all of this is is how awfully it's it's taken to uh, to a reactive. Um, I don't want to proactive is the wrong word, uh, but it, you're, it's taken to this. Uh, I said this before a hysterical level mm-hmm. of of reacting to anything that even smacks of questioning this uh, this dyed in the wool ingrained uh, victimhood. Uh, that um, that allows for, apologizes for, permits for uh, any reaction that is in defense of the tribe or, mm-hmm. or the or this or the, the victims. Um, so it you don't even realize I think uh, that you're doing it necessarily. It's a mm-hmm. program. Uh, you hear something that questions Israeli policy, uh, as I have. And there's this kind of knee-jerk emotional reaction that um, is by design intended to stifle the discussion, to shut it down, and to make the person who dares question any of this information uh, feel like shit, feel (laughs) like uh, a bad person. Uh, Even if it doesn't do that, that's what it's intended to do. Um, So I see how that whole kind of Pathological uh, way of thinking has been um, uh, used in this new radical left phenomenon in the West that we've been witnessing in the past few years. It's the exact same thing, Mm -hmm. Uh, and um, it's very dangerous
2: yeah with the the left in the u s you know and I think just in terms of like the right and left uh in the u s and the you know American Empire and how it's stretched and there's been you know so many different atrocities committed, whether you know it's in Vietnam or north korea um just you know over the course of an empire if you're building an empire and you're gonna you know you're gonna have to break some eggs to make an omelette and you know there's- a large part of the population that Um, is going to uh, see that, or, you know, people are going to see this, uh, the crimes that are committed, and they're going to, uh, you know, be angered by it, they're going to be disgusted by it, they're going to react to it. And the left side of the uh, political spectrum, over the course of, you know, the 20th century, a lot of people, you know, they had legitimate grievances, um, and they were open to other ways of viewing uh, politics, you know, they were, they... They saw, they thought capitalism was was evil. They thought you know discrimination was evil. They had all these simplistic uh, uh, reasons for why the world was the way that it was, why crimes are committed, why inequality exists, and through these you know simplistic reasoning combined with sort of you know this pretty decent you know pretty uh, just a, an amazing standard of living. People just started to adopt uh, simplistic jargon and they really were opened up to these identity politics ideologues who who were able to you know capitalize on their ignorance, capitalize on grievances and you know establish themselves in the university system and further extend their reach through activists and and all that stuff up until the 70s when identity politics itself kind of became, an established matter of fact. That was when, you know, identity politics as a term first first emerged. And, you know, it, it's just, I think that a large part of it is just this natural um, reaction as, you know, society goes through stages, through cycles, there's inequality, there's grievances. Mm-hmm. And then there's also people within those societies who are going to use those grievances to their own advantage. And I think these and then you know it's and they're able to they're able to mask everything that they do you know like feminists trying to redistribute wealth from you know from men to women essentially today through making it you know illegal to pay women differently than men you know through pushing for you know this wage gap myth and and all these things i mean a lot of the people you know the reasons they're doing these things and they're initiating these conflicts is not necessarily because they have the the best interests of all women in mind, or, mm-hmm. or you know, or if, you know, especially for Zionists and um, you know, another and racialist type uh, activists in in the West, they don't have the the best interests of their people in mind. They're just manipulating them. It's covert, classic covert aggression that people. Uh, you, it's difficult to react to when you're being called a, a Nazi or a fascist or a terrorist and. You know, and that's used to justify bringing you down. It's it's a really it's just um, it's mm-hmm. pathological. Well,
0: I think maybe a maybe a better term um, as opposed to grievances or even identity identity politics is grudge politics.
2: Yeah, It's definitely. because
0: they've got a, a grudge from a long time ago. Even mm-hmm. for, in the most cases, it's something that that wasn't that didn't even apply in their lifetimes, and that's where the grudge originates. And you can make the same case for um, or. In, In a different world, you can make the same case for Palestinians. I mean, it's it's been 60, 70 years, right? Get over it. Mm -hmm. Except that it's not just something that happened 70 years ago. It's something that's been happening for the past seven years. But that's besides the point. Um, The point I wanted to make is that there is a grudge that is held, um, sometimes over the case of generations, to the point where that that grudge, that past grievance, then justifies asking for more and more, and even creating um, creating new grievances that don't actually exist. Mm-hmm. So, of course, there are past grievances, usually in, in everything. Usually, if you have a group that's upset about something, they've got a justifiable reason for it at some point in time. Like, you can find one kernel of, of truth, at least in the grievance that they have. So, the, at the very beginning of the show, we made the point about the Holocaust. Yes, giant grievance. Mm-hmm. Um, the The... The, the total lack of rights for entire segments of the population yeah, that's a big grievance. slavery, huge grievance. It's like does it apply today? probably not mm-hmm. and and you find people in these ident- all these identity groups that say, yeah no these, these things these grievances don't apply today um, and but 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 they are they're held on to with such fervor mm-hmm. as this justification in order to it's well it's all to get something. And that that leads to the creation of new grievances that I don't ex- that don't yes. exist. Yes,
1: yeah. And on that note, uh, you'd think that the lesson of being victimized, uh, you'd think that the uh, the, the very experience or, or knowledge of your group having been um, subject to injustices would would make you want to uh, think about everyone experiences some form of injustice or or victimization. So uh, what we're seeing here in many of these cases is uh, groups of people who have not learned the lessons of history, which is uh, I think um, yeah, you know what occurred during the Holocaust or slavery or or, you know, or when women didn't have voting rights, pretty darn awful. Uh, However uh, you're not going to correct it by trying to extract all of the extra power uh, uh, and advantage for yourself right now. The real lesson of it would be thinking about everyone uh, that that you can include in your uh, calculus who right now isn't experiencing any kind of equity or or justice. Um,
2: and what is the meaning and purpose of life that you know that that it all has to be equal, that everything has to be nice and everything's not, not that it has to be nice, but that it's supposed to be and that it's somebody's fault that it isn't. Mm. I mean, who's you know, is it is it the you know white people's fault if, you know, they're on top of the heap for, you know, a hundred years? And then is it, you know, the Muslims fault when they're on top of the heap for a hundred years? I, there's there's a mechanism at play that is completely ignored um, you know, throughout history, that everybody has grievances. Every, the life sucks, and it's I mean, you know that's a, you know that's trite really to say it because it it just smacks of you know. <laughs> I mean, people suffer and relentlessly, and it's you know the meaning of life isn't to isn't to blame everyone for it, but it's to seek out the you know real reasons to make things better. Ways to make things better, ways to live nobler, and to sacrifice one's own, you know, desire for, you know, just to to get everything that we want in order to make in order to make that happen. But, you know, that's like you said, Harrison. That's that's the opposite of grudge politics. Grudge politics is, you know, somebody did this to me. That's somebody's fault. And you know, and behind that, I think that. For the large majority of people, in, in in terms of you know Zionism, the the Holocaust. I was reading uh, Norman Finkelstein's *The Holocaust Industry*, and he he writes about how the whole Holocaust as a quote-unquote mystery religion, um, in you know Israeli like national security type mystery religion, it didn't really come into existence until after the Israeli state had been had reached a pinnacle of power that was enough to keep the Arab enemies at bay. You know, it it wasn't just a natural phenomenon for Jews to just think, oh, the Holocaust was our, you know, was the unique visiting of horror upon our people. You know, it's nobody, people don't think like that. People don't want to. People don't want to hold grudges for their whole life. You know, most black people don't want to think be reminded about slavery every day. You know, we just want to live our normal lives. But it's these. But there are certain. And you know, these. This is where the ideologue and their mentality comes into play. They are the ones who want. Something for nothing. They are the ones who th- who want the entire group to be, just be seen as a victim, so that they can leverage the entire group's victimhood to get political or economic or you know, favors from everybody else. Or the rest of the group, they don't want that. I mean, for the most part, they mm-hmm. don't. Yeah. I mean, it takes a lot of work to convince them otherwise. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, and you see the same thing in, um, you know, another kind of overarching aspect of leftist ideology and that's in the just the notion of inequality how if you look at ordinary people and you and you poll ordinary people the vast majority of people have no problem with inequality whatsoever like if they see a person in a in a position that makes more money than than them for example they'll have no problem with that as long as that person's qualified and does a good job and that they can see that that person deserves the amount of money that they're making. Hmm. Like, if they see a person that's just, um, um, you know, get who, if they see a person that they perceive as getting a lot of money for no good reason, and in fact, that, like, this person has no talent and doesn't deserve that money at all, then they'll get resentment. Hmm. But for the most part, people are totally fine with with a degree of, of inequality. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, when that level, when that gets so extreme that, that, in, like, let's take a hypothetical society where a group of people have absolutely nothing, and then there's the few that have everything and that lord it over the, the people who have nothing, then you're, you're going to get resentment, and you, you breed this revolutionary mentality. Right. But just for the most part, people don't care, and people are fine. And yeah. most, and you'll notice that just in, in everyday life where, you know, people will, will express some resentment against, like, bankers, or you know people on Wall Street or something they've got the they've got their enemies that they pick out you know mm-hmm. but if they have no problem with their favorite rock star making a ton of money or the the movie stars that they watch when they go to movies or um you know people that actually earn their money like in their community if they if they know a person that that's a, su- a successful businessman that happens to make sure. three times as much of them
1: mm-hmm. then
0: you know they don't care no and they're actually they can be proud for that person or you know they admire them. Even, mm-hmm. for putting the work in and getting something from it. And so there's this, so that, that leads me to think that there's something else going on here, that it's not just that um, that, uh, an, an, that an identity group thinks all the same way. It is mm-hmm. a minority within that um, identity group, like you were saying, Corey, that, that has the, like the gall, the, the chutzpah, to, <laughs> to speak for the majority, to mm-hmm. say that the, I, I represent my group I represent everyone in my group and this is what we all think mm-hmm. when that's totally not the case. And I wanted to say something earlier, um, about, um, you know, when I, when I was talking about the, the ad hominem, um, like slanderous derogatory names that are, are, are called, um, you know, when someone either steps out of the, out of the group, out of the in group or, uh, criticizes the group, um, like, you know, rape apologist, uh, misogynist, fascist uh (laughs) anti-semite it's like then it it also applies to uh like there there's an added dimension for people that are who are on the in-group that leave so of course for um you're not just an anti-semite if you criticize your own group you're a self-hating jew Mm -hmm. and just and you find this in um you find this everywhere is that the people who are perceived as traitors to their own group are treated more harshly than outsiders who are seen as enemies.
1: Mm.
0: So you'll see this, uh, uh, I think it was even in um, uh, Jonathan Haidt's book, The um, Righteous Mind, where he talked about this. I believe that's where it was from. And you can easily imagine this, right? So you've got you've got a, a collective group. Maybe you're at war with another group, right? And, the, and someone in your group starts starts adopting the, the ideas and starts agreeing with the, with your enemy, the people mm-hmm. you're at war with that person gets targeted. That person will actually get treated more harshly mm-hmm. than, you know, some, some prisoner of war, some enemy from the outside. Mm-hmm. I mean, prisoner of war, like even metaphorically, um, cause it doesn't have to be an actual wartime situation. It's like you, what, what do you call them? Like, um, like there's the uncle Tom's right. Right. Or, um, uh, there's got to be words there's probably words for all of them but mm-hmm. uh, but I don't know any of them any of them please.
1: well just to give a recent example of uh, what you uh, said there Harrison you know there was a the case of uh, Natalie Portman uh, mm-hmm. who was uh, invited to an award ceremony in in Israel uh, she was going to receive two two million dollars that she could mm-hmm. give to a charity um, it was I forget the name of it but it's, it's comparable to Israel's Nobel Peace Prize, mm-hmm. for instance. And, um, and basically she came out with a letter and said, uh, given Israel's and the IDF's behavior uh, against the Palestinians who, who've been protesting for uh, the past uh, five, six weeks, uh, she didn't want to come. Uh, even though she supports Israel, uh, she was born in Israel, uh, lived in Israel until she was a teen, Um, she was basically speaking out against the government of Benjamin Netanyahu, who was doing what is quite obviously, uh, terrible things to people who were not, uh, causing any kind of terrorism as, as Israel would, uh, would say. So, uh, by way of explanation, she, you know, she came out, she made the statement and, um, Basically, you had members of Israel's government coming out and saying uh, kind of awful things about her. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so they should
2: revoke her citizenship. <laughs> revoke her
1: citizenship. She was, you know, she, she she used Israel to advance her career, and and now that she's made it, she, you know, she's an ungrateful ungrateful you know wench or whatever it is they said. Um, when really, you know, this this criticism that she came up with was right on target. It was the appropriate action. She didn't make a big deal about it, Mm-mm. but she spoke her conscience in a very, uh, a very measured, very powerful, I thought, way. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, she she was she's and, persona non grata now.
0: And her criticism wasn't even that extensive. Like she basically said, "I don't support BDS." Uh, you know, boycott, mm-hmm. divest, and sanctions. She, like she, she limited her her criticism to basically a vague statement about there are some things I don't agree with, and basically I don't want to be on this on stage with Benjamin Netanyahu.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. and that's
0: all she said. And they just came after her. Yeah, like one after the other. Just uh, some of some um, like Israeli columnists were even saying that she posed an existential threat mm-hmm. to Israel. They literally went that far without being. Facetious.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: They really thought that her making this kind of public statement, you know, just this tiny bit of non-support for Israel, because she is an Israel supporter, was enough to be an existential threat to Israel.
2: Mm. Right. And that, well, like, she's probably part of Hamas. That's the <laughs> Hamas probably had her do it. Yeah.
0: Well, um, I I think I want to get to some examples here. Um, we'll continue the. The stream of our discussion in a bit, but just to give an idea of what you know, uh, Jewish identity politics in Israel looks like, because I think a lot of people don't actually know, you know. Because I, I know for 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 me, before I was actively looking for information about what was going on in Israel and Palestine, and all I had was what I heard about in random conversations and the snippets that I might have seen on the news. You know, I had no idea what things were actually like. Mm-hmm. All I saw were, were let's say you know, Westerners talking about Israel on the news and maybe some Israeli spokesman, and that's mm-hmm. it. So um, it's really been kind of, whenever you look at anything, it's kind of an eye-opener, and you're like, wow, I had no idea any of that stuff was going on, so maybe we'll just take, uh, take a look at some examples here. So I'm going to bring up some articles. So first of all, uh, you know, recently there was the whole embassy move um, to, uh, the U.S. Embassy moved to Jerusalem in Israel mm-hmm. and um, Ivanka and Jared were there and they got blessed by a rabbi and this rabbi, he's the chief Sephardic rabbi Yitzchak Yosef and, oh, Yitzchak just, oh just wait, did I read that wrong? No, no, it's Yitzchak unless the sea is silent I don't know but um, here's something that uh, – oh, no, that, that was just – yeah, no, that was a bad article. Yitzhak. That's right. I brought another one up. So he th- – these are some of the things that he said. Um, so Yosef allegedly used derogatory phrases when talking about African-Americans during a lesson to followers last Saturday. This was uh, in March. Um, during the speech, he appeared to specifically suggest that prayers should only be offered to black people whose parents happen to be white. Um, don't know how that – works in a lot of cases but um, here's the quote so you go around in the streets of America every five minutes you will see a negro do you bless him as an exceptional creature we don't say a blessing for every negro he needs to be a negro whose father and mother are white if you know they had a monkey for a son they had a son like that Um, even the anti-defamation league which is like a crazy um, you know calls everyone an anti-semite who isn't one Organization even they, um, you know, released a statement saying that uh, this guy was crazy, uh, words to that effect. Um, so, Yitzhak referred to black people as monkeys and used the derogatory Hebrew word kushi to describe them. Um, what's a kushi?
1: Oh, a black person. A black
0: person. Yeah. And is it just black people, or is it just anyone that's like got color in their skin?
1: Uh, you know? it, it's mainly connected to blacks.
0: Okay. Um, he, this is the same guy, in 2016, he suggested that non-Jews who refuse to follow Jewish law should be expelled to Saudi Arabia. Um, Along with um, Ashkenazi Chief Rabbi David Lau, um, who who together they preside over many aspects of Jewish personal and religious life in Israel, also called immodestly dressed women animals and railed against smartphones, which he sees as heretical. Well, maybe I might agree with him about that, but, um, you know, not everyone's totally bad. Uh, so, okay. Yeah, the, uh, the ADL called his statements racially charged and utterly unacceptable. But that's, uh, that's actually pretty light. Oh, um, yeah. Now, okay, this is another one that just, um, it's not necessarily anything anyone said, but it just shows where identity politics goes. So the headline of this article... Uh, Israeli gets 11 years for stabbing Jew he mistook as Arab. So, story about this guy, he gets 11 years for attempted murder of another Jewish man who he mistakenly thought was an Arab. An inner voice allegedly guided him to find and kill an Arab in revenge for terror attacks by by Palestinians on Israelis. Um, So he cut him with a a kitchen knife, a, a box cutter, and a hammer. Walked into a local supermarket where he alleged he would be able to find his Arab victim. Now this guy's kind of crazy because uh, he's got an inner voice talking, but but this is the kind of um, it's kind of like a symbol of what's actually going on mm-hmm. in identity pol- in identity politics where you can't even tell who you're fighting anymore. And so again, going back to Antifa, it's like everyone that I disagree that I disagree with or that disagrees with me is a fascist. And what do you do with fascists? You punch fascists. Hmm. And is that person a re- really a fascist? Who decides if that person is a fascist? What if that person isn't a fascist? No, they're a fascist. You punch them. And it's like <laughs> it gets to the point of absurdity where you where where, where the the movement actually eats itself. Mm-hmm. And so you see that where you know ex liberals or no no current liberals are then thrown to the dogs because they say one thing wrong. Mm-hmm. And it's like. Uh, that's what happens to, you know, not only in movements like this, but in all revolutionary movements when the revolution actually happens. Well, you know, all you guys that started the revolution and, and um, you know, instituted whatever new order you want to institute, you're the first to the executioners, mm-hmm. you know, in the first 10 years. So, you know, have fun with that. It's um, a
2: good it? point. I did any politics, basically. It's, it's a revolutionary. It's very, it's roots. Revolutionary. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, yeah we, it
0: wants to change the
1: change the
2: order they want you know? the power mm-hmm. give us the power yeah. you don't deserve it you're
1: mean and, and it has the, uh, the unwanted un, unrealized effect of actually causing the resentment and the anger that that it claims to uh, be responding to to begin with so um, you know w- what ends up happening is uh, people resent other people who mm-hmm. consider themselves or want to be treated differently or exceptionally. Um, mm-hmm. so it, it's got this kind of, uh, paradoxical, you know, it, uh, you know, w- wish fulfillment, uh, no, that that's kind of the wrong term, um, self-fulfilling prophecy in a way, mm-hmm. uh, where the society or, or the universe or however you want to explain it, um, gives them what they want. Uh, it's like, okay, if, if you're really going to insist and identify with being so oppressed, and in demand for being treated exceptionally, uh, you're going to be treated exceptionally, but in the worst way, in a way mm-hmm. that you haven't imagined. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- that's a play here a little bit, mm-hmm. I think, as well.
0: Well, going in that, that direction about, um, um, you know, turning on their own, there's another article here. Um, it's from published in 2014. Apparently, a group of 300 Holocaust survivors placed an ad in the New York Times condemning the massacre at that time in 2014 on Gaza. And so this guy, um, this journalist, his friend, selected some of the responses in Hebrew posted on, um, on Facebook in response to that ad. So you can see, okay, so there's all the responses in Hebrew. Here are some choice translations of what um, Israelis are responding to those 300 Holocaust survivors that are basically saying that's, you know, you're committing a massacre, don't do it. So this first guy, David Cohen. Those aren't Holocaust survivors. Those are probably collaborators with the Nazis. Shmulek Halfon, He's invited to go back to Auschwitz. Itzik Levy. These are survivors who were capos, leftist traitors. That's why they live abroad and not in the Jewish state. Vitaly Gutman, Enough, they should die already. They survived the Holocaust only to do another Holocaust to Israel in global public opinion? Question mark? Mayor Dahan, no wonder Hitler murdered six million Jews because of people like you. You're not even Jews. You're disgusting people, a disgrace to humanity, and you are and so are your offspring. You are trash. One sentence. Asher Solomon, it's a shame Hitler didn't finish the job. Katie Murat Holocaust survivors who think like this are invited to go die in the gas chambers. Yafa Ashraf. Shitty ass You are not. You are the Nazis.
1: Well, with friends like those. I mean that 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 is that right there uh, is a sampling of some of the most despicable and pathological uh, thinking that I think you'll you're likely to get. Uh, th- those are the folks that listen to you know the rabbi uh, that you uh, quoted from earlier, mm-hmm. Harrison, and uh, you see very similar responses against the. Um, the IDF soldiers from breaking the silence. Mm-hmm. These are the guys who came out and said, you know, what we were doing in Gaza during Operation Cast Lead and, and other operations is horrendous, uh, gratuitously destroying homes and killing innocent people. Uh, so these, these were the the brave soldiers of the IDF who had the conscience and the courage, uh, you know, against a, a, an 80 80- 80% plus Israeli population that is, uh, for all of this carnage in Gaza, uh, to come out and say, you know, <clears throat> this is, this isn't only wrong, it's, it's a criminal act that, that we perpetrated. And so you've had a lot of people, um, cause these are very powerful statements, uh, coming mm-hmm. from the, the, the literal boots on the ground. Mm-hmm uh so how do you you know how do you you know knock them down a notch or two you have to come up with um in some cases you you hear statements like like those you just read Harrison and in other cases you know the the these these soldiers are confused they're uh, again uh self-hating Jews mm-hmm. uh any any kind of rationalization to um to try and explain away what are almost uh, incontrovertible, uh, undeniable um, human reactions Mm -hmm. to to the behavior of the IDF in Gaza. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, um, I want to get back to a few more articles. So these are just some more examples of things that rabbis say. Now, these are... I, w- I, shouldn't, I actually shouldn't say just rabbis because these are just particularly bad rabbis. There are some good rabbis out there.
2: Like mm-hmm.
0: um, like Rabbi Latz on Facebook just, uh, just recently, um, yesterday, tweeted – or no, um, is that a tweet or a Facebook? I can't tell. I think it's uh, Twitter. He said on Twitter, I am a rabbi. I love Israel. I condemn without reservation the bloodshed in Gaza. Not so hard. You can challenge Israeli the Israeli government's policies without being anti-Semitic. So you know, good for him for for saying that. It's got 136,000 likes, 42,000 retweets. You know, um, mm. um, as of well, as of a while ago, probably more now. Um, but you know, so there are some there are good rabbis out there, and there are good Orthodox Jew, Jewish groups, for instance, that are totally anti. Um, um, you know, anti—all these anti-Gaza op- operations—that's mm-hmm. a really awkward
1: way of saying it. Um, even even anti-Zionist.
0: Yeah, even anti-Zionist, mm-hmm. even anti-Zionist for sure. Um, but then you get guys like this. Now, these are—you know—I think these guys are just as dangerous as Karl Marx was, um, because they they preach an ideology, mm-hmm. and that ideology then forms like the the mental substrate of the way that their that their followers think. And that then leads to action. You know, thought leads to action. And if you're not responsible about what you put into your head
1: mm-hmm.
0: and what you believe, then bad things can happen. So here's just an, an example. This is um, Rabbi Ophir Wallace. Um, headline, influential rabbi is teaching would-be Israeli soldiers genocide is a mitzvah. That is a, an ordained holy action. So uh, this is what he said um, in uh, a teaching video for would-be soldiers. I'll I'll read the translation. It was in Hebrew. So, in conquering the land of Israel, according to Nachmanides and Rashi, you know, two Jewish rabbi teachers um, of old, who say that the wars of today are also mitzvah wars for conquering the land, I am beholden to nothing. This isn't the law of the persecutor, right? What laws are we dealing with? The laws of a mitzvah war, the, the, a war of occupying the land. Even if I don't conquer Gaza right now, conquering it is part of my ability to settle the land of Israel. So it also, so it is also a part of the mitzvah of conquering the land, and therefore it follows. There's no other way. Like we'd have to kill them all, because this is the difference between the law of the persecutor and mitzvah wars. A mitzvah war of conquering the land, which is not limited to saving the people of Israel from their enemies, according to some of the Rishonim, could, I could, on the face of it, and by essential law, destroy, kill, and cause to perish all of them. I will not do so, because if I were to do so and reject the international treaties, then the state of Israel shall perish, unless we shall witness a miracle of miracles. And one must not trust in a miracle. And that's the only reason I won't do it. Mm-hmm. So the only reason he won't engage in genocide is because it would be bad PR for Israel. Mm-hmm. And okay, let's go on because there's a reason. Um, there's a reason that people are able to think about this, think like this, aside from just mental illness and like psychopathy in the you know the worst cases. Um, and that goes back, you know, to ide- ideology. So <clears throat> um, this is another article on Mondo Weiss. Reclaiming Judaism from mystical Zionist nationalism. So um, they quote this um, this Rabbi Eli Sedan, and um, this is from a video, and again, a seven minute video message to his former students, and including those in uniform. Um, this is his moral bro- morale booster. So let me get to the good bit. Okay, so he's talking about memory. Then okay. This is the, art, the the writer of the article commenting here. So, Zionist supersessionism is here too. Judaism before Zionism was asleep, if not dead. So this is the quote from the rabbi. The nation has a soul awakening. The Shekinah, God's spirit, is returning to Zion. The spirit of the Jewish people has appeared. From the deep wellsprings of life, the nation comes back to life. In the collective subconscious of us all, beyond all political disagreements, there is a clear awareness that there is nothing more important than the rebirth of Israel in its land. This gives birth in the people to a heroism, determination and commitment to sacrifice that is beyond words. Now note that that's important. There is a clear awareness that there is nothing more important than the rebirth of Israel in its land. Mm -hmm. Now think about that. Nothing more important Mm-hmm. If that is the most important thing in your life, in the life of all of your people, your nation, your nation, then, you know, what limits are there? What yeah. is to stop? What is to, what is to get in the way of the rebirth of the nation? Nothing. Everything is permitted. That's one of the problems with, well, that, that is the problem with these main ideologies, is that they have this one focal point, right? This mm-hmm. one goal toward, towards which they are striving. And that is the most important thing. Nothing can get in the way. No morals, you know, the morals of the enemy. No. It's like the, the most important thing is the rebirth of Israel. And therefore, anything is permitted.
1: Right. Well,
0: anything, you know, within the, you know, the Halakha or, you know, the, within the Talmud, within the, the structure of laws, if if you're talking about the rabbis. Um, but even then, you know, as, we, as we'll see in a bit, it's pretty much everything is permitted. Mm-hmm. And that's why you can get a guy, you know, what, what he said before about, uh, about genocide, you know, in a mitzvah war, a holy ordained war, anything is permitted. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and the only reason that I don't, you know, that he doesn't do that is because of bad PR. It's because the most important thing in life is the rebirth of Israel. So when you stake your entire meaning, the entire meaning of your, of your life on some, you know, something like a nation state – What do you have to, you know, you don't have any target to, to move up towards. Mm -hmm. Like that's it. Mm -hmm. And that gets back to what you were saying, Corey, about, you know, what do we live, what's life for? It's like, is it to be, you know, resentful all the time or is it to find some meaning and to do something with your life and to, you know, to do do something meaningful, but meaningful in a broad sense. Mm -hmm. It's like if you, if you limit your... Personally meaningful. Personally meaningful, but, you know, it can be meaningful for other people too, because that's... Like when you have a personal, a personal goal, let's say, or if you're doing something for yourself, you're actually doing it for other people too, because you can't isolate yourself completely from other people. When mm-hmm. you do, when you act just completely, um, you know, off the cuff or just on your your momentary instincts and whims, that actually pushes you away from people, and people don't like you, mm-hmm. and you actually become less successful at getting what you want. It's like you have to, you have to give a little to get a little. Mm-hmm. And you know, and even psychopaths know that. They know that to, to manipulate you in order to get what they want from you, they have to at least at least put some effort into giving the impression that they that they're doing something for you. They have to hook you basically. Mm-hmm. But just for ordinary people, it's like it it always comes down to doing what's best for you and what's best for the people around you. It's like when you when you um you know, when you're going for a goal, like a, a long term goal or a short term goal, you're not gonna be able to do that if you don't have support, you know. Because you're, you're constantly interacting with people.
1: Well, I just want to flesh out a couple of things about uh, what he said there. Uh, first of all, it's on the same spectrum of, you know, all is permitted in the name of uh, creating the Zionist state. Mm-hmm. So we've had statements coming out of rabbis to the effect that it, it's okay to rape uh, mm-hmm. a, an Arab woman or a Palestinian mm-hmm. because it will boost the morale of the soldier. Rabbis have actually come out and said this sort of thing. Uh, so you have that. But um, underlying, you know, uh, the, your ultimate life's purpose is, is for the strength of Israel. Um, it, it it would be something if you were instilled with a certain nationalistic pride and you wanted to make your country strong and here, uh, which, mm-hmm. which many people don't understand. And that is part of this – this vision of, of Israel or, or Zionism is for a greater uh, Zionism or Israel, an Eretz Israel, and what this amounts to basically uh, is a very ambitious project of growing Israel uh, on, the, on the lands of Syria, Iraq, Iran, and becoming this kind of center of power, uh, in the, and then exerting its its influence in ways that are um, just egregious. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> underlying everything that that he said there uh is this kind of uh we're going for broke here folks uh mm-hmm. it, it's not it's not merely that that we're trying to uh keep Israel strong and, and integrated and and even moral uh that doesn't even that doesn't even come into play in the sense that we think about it it's about imperial uh for lack of a better word uh Power and influence in the Middle East. Period. Mm-hmm. So that that is where a lot of these um, these guys are coming from.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, and it's it's so it's such a it's such a bizarre such a bizarre situation when you think about what led up to the creation of Israel, the Holocaust, and you think about you know throughout history inequalities, genocides, everything they're they're constantly ongoing and. You know, what we're seeing now is just the continuation of that process uh, of, you know, ethnic cleansing base, you know, one people, they move into a region, they start killing everybody off, they want to build, they want to take over, you know, some of, you know, and there's this, obviously this uh, ideology that, that, um, that is used to, to justify it, um, that's, you know, claims its roots in the Jewish uh, identity, but, you know at the same time this these the the Jewish people are it's like they are they're very much aware of what it is and aware on some level that it's wrong if in from the point of view of the rest of the world so we know what we're doing but we have to keep it secret and we have to you know we have to cloak it we have to speak about it in public in, you know, a certain way, any criticism, any, you know, like when Natalie Portman said, if you say anything about it, you know, with these elite are you know, you, it's a, it could lead to another Holocaust. Mm-hmm. And it's just such a bizarre uh, mentality that I cannot, for the life of me, wrap my, my head around is that. You know to to be there to know that it's that the rest of the world sees it as wrong, but then also to know that the rest of the world is anti-semitic yes mm-hmm. they will they will do this to us yes. so we have to do we have to get on top we have to do it to them first mm-hmm. I think I mean not necessarily we have to do it to them first but There is this level of paranoia, of fear, of hatred, of anger in the words of these, you know, these rabbis um, and these ideologues that that is the heart of, you know, identity politics, whatever you want to call it. That is like you got it right there. It's it's just brutal.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I think maybe that would be a good segue into uh, a recent – Experience that Jordan Peterson had. Oh, yes, uh, because Jordan Peterson uh, was recently approached by a journalist, so-called, uh, from The Forward, which is a um, a Jewish publication uh, that writes about a lot of these issues and and even takes a kind of pseudo quasi progressive stance in some instances. But um, but in this recent case. Uh, through his um, publicist, uh, Peterson was approached by uh, a writer um, who had a series of questions for him. Uh, Peterson agreed to, uh, to do the interview. The, the, the writer offered to, you know, write a piece about Peterson for the forward. And, um, and pretty much uh, the questions were, were all framed around Peterson's relationship to um, or thoughts on uh, antisemitism, uh, the Holocaust, the Jewish question so-called. Um, so like he, he had questions like, um, you know, what accounts for your fascination with Adolf Hitler? Have you ever said or would be willing to say that what Hitler did in terms of beginning orchestrating and insisting on the organized extermination of Jewish of European Jews was morally wrong. Now, right there, with this one question that this journalist presents, uh, almost says everything you need to know about this guy yeah. uh, and, and what he thinks and what he's trying to do uh, with, with yeah. his article that he's mm-hmm. writing. Uh, because anyone who who has listened to Peterson uh, for even a, a tiny bit realizes that he's he's really thought through uh, anti-semitism he's really thought through uh, World War two Nazism Hitler stalinism
2: ideologies
1: mm-hmm. uh, what people are capable of and and has and has put this out there it, it's it's been his life's mission to explain how the, how these things unfold and and what informs the thinking of the people who perpetrate uh, crime against Jews or anyone else. So uh, as it happens, uh, you know, Peterson is, gets pretty wise to the game right away uh, with a series of questions that kind of sound like that uh, and, and are like that. And, um, and sure enough, uh, this, this journalist comes out with a piece and um, the title is uh, you know is, is Jordan Peterson enabling, well let me see if I can get the exact name here of the of the title because it's it's outrageous. Um,
0: well here I'll,
1: I'll bring it up. yeah but but basically is is you know is Jordan Peterson enabling Jew hatred and and um, and it basically twists, Everything that that Peterson has has ever said and done on the subject to portray him as a questionable figure, and I'm I, you know Peterson presents this uh, the, the timeline of events um, in the writing of this article and his reaction and his response to the editor of the forward, uh, and um, and and I you know I was thinking why would this guy come out and present Peterson as a, as a May be anti semite or is an anti semitic person, and the reason is that Peterson uh, poses an indirect threat to the identity politics of Israel and and a lot of Jewish people, and so it even if he's even if he's mm-hmm. coming out and speaking out against anti semitism, it's not enough mm-hmm. for, for for the Zionists, because the very type of thinking that Peterson has been explaining and, and railing against is the same type of thinking that Zionists engage in and want mm-hmm. other people to engage in. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's why he has to come around – that's why he has to, he has to get Peterson yeah. because sooner or later uh, people, are, people are going to put two and two together and realize uh, in, in greater numbers that identity politics extends, as we're discussing today – to Israel and and to uh, Jewish Zionists, mm-hmm. so uh, it was a real you know a real lesson in in how these people operate. Um, really covert, really underhanded, and and really a, a kind of strong preemptive mm-hmm. uh, attack against Jordan Peterson and everything that he's trying to do right
2: now. Well, I think it's interesting because that is the same approach that so many other you know, like NBC News, 60 Minutes, so many different uh, mainstream outlets, uh, they absolutely refuse to even address what he's saying. It's like they can't even understand what he's saying. They are all like such ideologues of whatever ideology that they preach that they can't even understand what he's saying. Whenever he says something, all all they hear is, "I hate women." When he says that that you can't use a univariate analysis to explain the a complex problem such as men and women and the amount of money they make across the planet, across you know the races, across all classes, they just say, "I, what you don't believe in the wage gap? You must hate. You must wish all women stayed at home." You know, that's that ideologue mindset is so, it's so, um, it's so on display. And and he is just by every time that they attack him like that, more and more people, it seems they. They hear what he's saying and they're like, Wow, he's rational. Yeah. I like I like his use of reason because I actually find that reason can help me accomplish things in my life. And when I actually think things through without being an ideologue, without just believing in whatever my university liberal professor taught me, I can actually accomplish things. And he, that is a huge threat <laughs> to mm. any any ideologue. You don't no ideologues do not want people thinking for themselves.
0: Right. And especially psychologists. Maybe we'll get into that in a bit. yeah but um i want to i want to go over some of the questions some of the back and forth that that uh, peterson um had with uh what was, it, what was his name Ari feldman
1: mm-hmm.
0: um so here's the the blog post that um that peterson put on his website and so one of the first questions that feldman had asked him was do you believe it is possible to reasonably de- determine why the holocaust came about if so what's your answer I think that's, that's, I think that question, like all of these, was designed to be a trap of some sort, mm-hmm. because I'm presuming that the only answer is anti-Semitism, and that anti-Semitism has a, a particular meaning, and that any other answer, maybe ex- explaining anti-Semitism, would thereby be anti-Semitic. Mm-hmm. Be- well, for various reasons. We're going to get into that. But then they had a, a back and forth here. So um, on May 8th, Feldman s- sent me some more questions, and I provided answers. So, um, let me me get to this one. Okay, so, I don't distinguish... Okay, second, you told me it's difficult to know why the Holocaust happened because we don't know a lot about the psychology of ordinary Germans who participated in the Nazi regime. How important do you think is anti-Semitism to explaining the origins and extent of the Holocaust? Peterson replied, I don't see how you can distinguish cause and effect when discussing the relationship between anti-Semitism and the Holocaust because they are different element elements of the same thing. The question is, what is driving both? See, now, right there, that is um, wrong. You know, it's wrong from mm-hmm. Feldman's perspective. It's wrong from the the, the ideologue's perspective. Mm-hmm. And um, because if we go to, to this article... Um, this is some, some news from the U.S. This is South Carolina, U.S. state passes law defining any criticism of Israel as anti-Semitic. Right. Yeah, just as they killed 60 civilians. Okay, okay. less well, free thought project for you. But here's their different, here's the definition of anti-Semitism. So we're going to read this out and maybe analyze some of these uh, statements. So a certain perception of Jews, which may be expressed as hatred towards Jews. Okay, so right there, it may or may not be hatred of of Jews. So it presumably can be any, well, it's a certain perception of Jews. Mm -hmm. We're not quite sure what that certain perception is yet. Um, Rhetorical and physical manifestations of anti-Semitism are directed towards Jewish or non-Jewish individuals and or their property towards Jewish community institutions and religious facilities. Okay, again, Jewish or non-Jewish. So you can be anti-Semitic towards a non-Jewish person Uh, Yeah, I really don't understand that. Okay. Calling for aiding or justifying the killing or harming of Jews. Okay, reasonable. Making mendacious, dehumanizing, demonizing, or stereotypical allegation about Jews as such, or the power of Jews as a collective. Accusing Jews as a people of being responsible for real or imagined wrongdoing committed by a single Jewish person or group, the state of Israel, or even acts committed by non-Jews. Um case some reasonable stuff in there, again, mixed in with that, or even by non-Jews, uh, don't know why. Accusing the Jews as a people or Israel as a state of inventing or exaggerating the Holocaust. Okay. Um, accusing Jewish citizens of being more loyal to Israel or to the alleged priorities of Jews worldwide than to the interests of their own nations. Now, okay, I got a problem with that one because... That, you know, that seems to me to be a reasonable criticism of anyone, you know, that, that, that every country makes, you know, every country that has um, a minority or, a, a, you know, a group of, of foreigners that comes into the country, for instance, I'm not, I'm not including Jews in this, in, in this example, um, there are questions about dual loyalties. And we see this going on in Europe right now, with the, the refugee migrant crisis. It's like, where you have a whole a whole bunch of people like uh, a substantial percentage not all of them of migrants who come to european countries with no intention to to assimilate into the culture and the the locals naturally are irked about that it's like okay well i don't know what to think about that because you know we do things a certain way here and if you don't do do, do things a certain way here i'm getting i'm going to get nervous mm-hmm. right that's just the normal human response so when you have like a dual national in your country of course there's going to be um, the, the risk that they're going to spy on your country for instance maybe they're working for the foreign government for, for that other foreign government's um, intelligence agencies you don't know I mean th- these are these are practical problems that governments deal with all the time and, and and they deal with them with all different countries right so there are Chinese nationals that live in the states that are subject to scrutiny in the United States or any other country because they might be Chinese spies right mm-hmm. and it, so it applies to any any group from another country, like any dual national citizenship where it's like, okay, there's a potential you might be a spy for another country. Um, and sometimes they are, <laughs> sometimes they get caught, mm-hmm. right? You have, you've had plenty of Russians that have gotten caught in the United States spying on, you know, on the U S and they get deported back or in a, you know, a, a spy exchange or something. So it's like, but, but it's special when it's an, a dual Israeli American citizen, I guess, maybe, you know, because, because then, you know, that's the the one category of a dual national who, um, who, especially bad, you, you can't say anything bad about them because then you're anti-Semitic. Mm-hmm. But you can do the same for Russians or Chinese or, you know, Iranians. Mm-hmm. You know, no problem. Okay, well, moving on. Rant over. Using the symbols and, associ- and images associated with classic anti-Semitism to characterize Israel or Israelis. Okay. So... For, I'm guessing, you know, you can you can find images like this all over the on the internet. You've got the, the, the Israeli flag, right? But it's got a blue mm-hmm. swastika in it or something like that. Mm-hmm. Now, there are, again, Holocaust survivors and other prominent Jews who make the comparison between what yes. the, the Israeli state does and what the Nazis yes. did.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Legitimate comparisons, but that's anti-Semitic. Yeah. Okay. Drawing comparisons of contemporary Israeli policy to that of the Nazis. Okay. They just went out and said it. So mm-hmm. you're not allowed yeah. to do that. There are... Even if there are similarities, they cannot be pointed out. It's mm-hmm. okay. Yeah. Okay. Can't do that. Blaming Israel for all interreligious or political tensions. Okay. Well, I guess the vast majority of people are, you know, are free on that one because barely anyone blames everything on Israel, and the ones that do are crazy. So, um, okay, I can get behind that one. Applying double standards by requiring of Israel a behavior not expected or demanded of any other democratic nation. Again, I don't think that that can apply to that, anyone because well, I don't think anyone does that.
2: <laughs> well, that that basically makes it sound like you it's it's criminal to say they can't defend themselves. Right. I mean, and it, now and now it just basically sounds like the whole bill is you, you can't you can't draw a generalization, you can't use the word Jew. Don't use it. You better not. Better not talk about anything, anything in terms of their wealth, their power. The Israelis uh, definitely don't criticize Israel, anything that Israel does. But what are the actual consequences if I should accidentally use the word Jew and, and I'm criticizing Israel? What are the consequences? Do I get a fine?
1: Oh, I haven't I haven't read that far yet yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I haven't read about the the legal repercussions of actually mm-hmm. being called a uh, oh, well this speci- considered- this specifically
0: yeah. applies to um, I think colleges and to well to, to universities and maybe um, schools I think yeah public schools and universities
1: yeah was this the uh, South Carolina Yeah one mm-hmm. okay so I think that it its main purpose is to act as a kind of a, a thought police. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and um, and to uh, kind of prevent you from sharing the um, the information that that is probably you know factual in its right. criticism of Israel.
2: So, like, if I share a Facebook article, like if I'm on campus and I, I'm a college student, I share a Facebook article about just criticizing Israel from ABC News. Is AB is that? You know, it's well, potentially, potentially, yeah. right?
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: That's how far it can go.
1: And, and just to make a connection here, I mean, what, what brought Jordan Peterson into the spotlight to begin with in a major way was his speaking out against the, uh, Canadian exactly. legislation, yeah. uh, which, which basically amounted to people <laughs> having to use one of 50 preferred, um, personal pronouns under, uh, under threat of something. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we're what we're seeing here uh, is we're seeing this kind of legislation of ideology. Yeah. In in the U S, in Canada, um, and and there is, you know actually that getting back to to this guy's article for the Forward, uh, it, it becomes even more clear why he felt like he had to do this even you know on a subconscious level. Uh, because there is this kind of legislation in the U.S. happening everywhere. It's not only in, in South Carolina. Mm-hmm. There, there are stories yeah. about it occurring in, in many other places where criticism or support, criticism of Zionism in Israel, support for boycott, divest sanctions, is tantamount to anti Semitism.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, um, you know, this is the tyrannical, authoritarian, uh, ideological. Um, thought police in action right now here in the Mm -hmm. West Mm -hmm. Um, and he and he's putting his foot down and people are paying attention and um,
0: and of course the irony is that he's not even like remotely um, on the same level as real anti-Semites it's like He's got nothing but good things to say. Yep. Yeah. You know, he, he like he said himself in his blog post, and he, well, he said it in his email, I think, to to Ari Feldman, it's, or no, to uh, Deborah Deborah Lipstadt, Lipstadt, who also um, was quoted in that article um, as being like, you know, kind of clutching her pearls that uh, that Peterson might say something that might be interpreted in a bad way, and he basically said, "Look, I'm, I'm on your side here. You're attacking an ally." Mm-hmm. And It's like, so these people are very strange. Like Ari Feldman is like, he co- he's besides being a terrible journalist, he's just a very strange dude. Um, <laughs> because like someone, and uh, one of the responses to, um, to this forward article that was um, written in defense of Jordan Peterson, you know, someone just listed all of the Jewish intellectuals that are either close personal friends of Jordan Peterson or who he has a, you know, a professional or, you know, a, a positive relationship with. And there, there's a ton of them. Um, and, and Feldman even um, even linked uh, it's kind of this guilt by association thing, basically saying that Peterson was like Kevin McDonald, who's the evolutionary psychologist mm-hmm. who kind of um, has his theory of why um, you know why Jew Jewish individuals and groups have dominated in certain areas. Um, um, you know, for instance in um you know s- certain areas of like what social an- social psychology uh, anthropology yeah. um you know things like that, and he's got his idea and so so Peterson has linked to to critiques of Kevin McDonald and, and has written his own on why he thinks Kevin McDonald is wrong mm-hmm. you know he's not on kevin mcdonald's side, mm-hmm. and yet Feldman presumably couldn't find this out on the internet when it's very obvious you know it's, Peterson doesn't have any have very many blog posts and that's one of them, and yet he k- you know, he links Peterson to McDonald as if they're kind of similar. And, you know, the alt-right really likes McDonald because, you know, he's got this reason, this answer to the Jewish question. But um, back to the anti-Semitism thing, um, I want to um, I want to go back to that a little bit because um, just to, to pick up a couple of things you said. But first, um, a couple more quotes um, to kind of put this all in context. So this is from... Uh, Maurice Samuel, in his book, You Gentiles, written in 1924. Okay, so he writes, that we Jews stand apart from you Gentiles, that a primal duality breaks the humanity I know into two distinct parts, that this duality is a fundamental, and that all differences among you Gentiles are trivialities compared to that which divided all of you from us. Okay, so there is some, you know, some... Essential difference between Jews and all non-Jews, apparently. Okay. Leon Pinsker. This guy was a a respected Russian forerunner of Zionism. And he wrote that Judeophobia, so anti-Semitism as we call it today, is a hereditary and incurable disease transmitted for 2,000 years. A variety of demonopathy with the distinction that it is not... not with the distinction that it is not peculiar to particular races, but is common to the whole of mankind. And then Josue Josue Jehuda, um, he's got an ethnocentric theory of history when he writes, he who plumbs the depths of universal history to gain an overall vision finds that from ancient times until today, two opposing currents are fighting over history, penetrating and shaping it constantly. The messianic current... And that and the anti-Semitic current. Okay, so we mentioned this thing about anti-Semitism. Now, anti-Semitism is like the it's the answer for everything from the Zionist ideology. Just like in communism, the answer answer for everything is class oppression, right? Mm-hmm. And so we've got the thing we're fighting against: anti-Semitism, class oppression, and to get above that, we're we're moving towards something. So of course, it's the the Jewish state. Um, in uh, in Israel, or it's the you know the Marxist utopia, mm-hmm. you know, the dictatorship of the proletariat, the the communist uh, utopia that everyone is pushing t- towards, and that's the most important thing. And of course, we've seen what what happened in you know Stalinism is that that holding that ideal justified anything. Mm-hmm. Just like we said before um, about you know that guy that rabbi saying that the most important thing is the that is the the renewal or the rebirth of the Jewish state, mm-hmm. is that. The most important thing in the Soviet Union was the establishment of of uh, communist Ethiopia, apparently, well, allegedly, and that justified everything. That justified rounding up a whole bunch of people who were innocent and shooting them in the back of the head, just because, just because, you know, because they were class enemies, and didn't even have, they didn't even have to be class enemies, you know, there there were completely innocent people that were caught up in that, and if they were class enemies, it's like what you're going to. Arrest me and execute me for having a different economic theory than you. Is that it? You're going to kill me for that? Well, people did get killed for that. People got tortured for that. Uh, Well, um, but this this is what it comes down to. It's that one single ideal, uh, one single idea that ideologues have, and they can't get out of that idea. It's like that idea determines everything. It determines their whole moral framework. Mm -hmm. That one idea. They don't have something within which to place that ideal. It's like so. So let's say we've got this national ideal, a group has a national ideal, you've got a tribal ideal, well, you have to place that ideal within a larger, you know, framework, a larger context. It's like if you if you don't have a larger context, then you're, you know, you're no different than the person that places their own, you know, self, their own self worth in a bubble. In exclusion to the the well-being and the, the interests of the people surrounding you, mm-hmm. and we already talked about people who are like that. People who are like that not only, for the most part, end up to be total failures because they can't cooperate with anyone. No one will help them. No one likes them, and you know that they they can't get any cooperation from them. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, um, you know, if they can get some cooperation, it's manipulated, and they you know those people are serial killers, um, or you know similar types of psychopaths. It's like it doesn't work. And we know it doesn't work, but anyways.
1: Um, well, j- j- just to add something to that, uh, Israel has successfully been behaving this way for the past seventy years uh, in in uh, getting its nuclear power, in um, extracting large amounts of uh, financial support from the U.S., uh, in uh, its um, its propagation of false flag terror. Uh, so. Um, To 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 its mind, it's because they haven't got caught out yet. They become emboldened, it seems, Mm -hmm. to to act out even further in this direction. Mm -hmm. It's almost as if the uh, you know no no one has had the power to uh, to to really punish Israel uh, Mm -hmm. in a way, or or to extract any kind of uh, justice onto Israel for so long. Mm -hmm. You know, the UN makes a a you know, says something might be war crimes or, or, or calls Israel out for some bit of behavior. And Israel is like, very nice, screw you. We'll do whatever mm-hmm. we want to do, which is in, in evidence right now uh, as we speak. Um, so uh, it, it remains to be seen um, that it, it's, its ideological uh, purpose and, and modus operandi is going to be addressed and it will be addressed uh because it is crossing red lines left and right uh at the moment in Syria uh with the Iranian government um with with Gaza and you know there there is just so far in that direction that that they can go and it's
2: it's such a a unique case in terms of you know, modern history uh, of an ethnic uh, of a state with ethnic colonies and you know a racial and, and religious kind of Criterion for um, for the ideal, you know, we're talking about the ideal vision of the ideal state in the future, um, and in that, that ideal, it's you know, it's a Jewish state. Now, you know, if let's say in you know, let's say in that they could come out and they could just say, "This is what we want. We want a Jewish state. That's it." I mean, just say it. Come clean. Be, don't don't be manipulative. Don't be lying. Just let. The, let people come in, let some sort of a process, mediation, something. But the problem, you know, is that it's it's so underhanded and it's so, uh, you know, there's this extra layer of relishing the of relishing it, it relishing the, the, the suffering that's caused and the crushing. You know, there's, I mean, I'm not saying everybody, I don't know everyone in, in Israel, but I'm just saying from what you can see. In, you know, different protests and, you know, calling for genocide and calling, you know, they're the vermin, destroy them, destroy them. Mm -hmm. They've been whipped into such a fervor by the crazy Netanyahu's and the, you know, those, that whole class Mm -hmm. that it's, you know, it's not about, it's like, it's not even about that ideal state anymore. You know, it's, it's, there's something else. There's something
1: extra. There there is something extra. You know, there's this... uh... There's this kind of vindictive yeah. um, uh, thinking involved. It's not enough that we win; you have to lose. Mm-hmm. There, a win-win uh, doesn't play into um, the, the, the considerations that the Israeli government have mm-hmm. at the moment. Uh, the other parties have to lose. Um, you know, there is no bilateral, multipolar. Uh, Uh, thinking involved Mm -hmm. just to put it into geopolitical terms. Mm -hmm. It's, 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 you know, it's like, uh, Schwarzenegger and Conan the barbarian, you know, uh, crush my enemies, you know, uh, he says a couple of other things. (laughs) It's, it's, it is, it's barbaric. Mm -hmm. Um, but they have these guys coming on the news in their suits speaking so well, uh, and, and Projecting blame everywhere else onto Hamas, onto mm-hmm. the uh, Palestinian Authority. Uh, if you didn't know any better, uh, you you would be likely to be taken in mm-hmm. by these shysters.
0: Okay, so do we want to? Do we have any more angles we want to go with this, or do we want to? Well, just end
1: it for now. One. One last bit that I thought was kind of interesting. Um, This was about a year ago. Um, So uh, Alan Dershowitz, our our favorite uh, Zionist lawyer and mouthpiece uh, in the U.S. um, had come out to say that, uh, you know, he he thought that identity politics in in the U.S. among the left and the right was going too far, (laughs) And I, and I just thought, wow, <laughs> how does How does the? How do you say that? <laughs> yes, where you know, and what bizarro planet is he in a position to to make uh, statements and judgments about other people's identity politics? If you know anything about Alan Dershowitz, the guy is, uh, you know, couldn't be more subjective or or a greater proponent for um, what we've been taking a part here on today's show um so yeah i thought that was interesting
0: <laughs> okay well i think that wraps it up for today then thank you everyone for listening um thanks to Elan and Corey for being here and we will see you all next week so take care and tune in uh, remember tomorrow we got behind the headlines and friday after that Health and Wellness show take care everyone
1: bye bye everyone